can't tell right now that like our listeners what is, here. Did I already tell you guys about what's the what's wide and annoying at breakfast? Did I tell you that one yet? Mm-mm. I don't know. I don't think so. All right. What what is white and annoying at breakfast? Well, I mean, we heard you the first time, so <laughs> do you know? <laughs> no, what? An avalanche. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I feel like I, I mean, did hear that wrong. joke somewhere? <laughs> All right, here's one. here's one. What is no, uh? Please. What do you call a dog? With, what do you call a dog with no legs? Ground beef. That's uh, a cow. Ooh, dang man! Uh, it yeah, doesn't matter. It's here. not coming anyway. <laughs> not coming anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How was my answer worse than that? That was the answer, dog. No, no pun intended. That was the answer, dude. That was that was the answer to the joke. I have heard Rob tell that. And you know where I heard Rob tell that? I'm pretty sure it was at a strip club. But <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, if you you know, so all right, well, let's start off this way. Hey, what's up, you beautiful people? This is Gary Horde, and this is this is pro wrestling. And uh, this is our pro wrestling history show where we celebrate the past, present, future history, legacy, and tradition of the greatest sport of all time, professional wrestling. And of course, I'm here with my hetero life mates, Will Martin. Hey, Will. Hey. And what's up? The Doc, Rob Stinson. Hey, Doc. Yes, indeed. What's up, man? This is going to feel like a weird episode for a few reasons. So I'm just going to establish that right up front because this is a transitional episode, as, as Rob would say. Point A, we've already recorded this once and we lost the recording. (laughs) Point two, (laughs) we're coming off the high of actually just recording our first ever official NWA Power post show. So uh, it's 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 been a it's been a big night for us already. But we also know we've been abandoning you people that listen to the Pro Wrestling History podcast, and uh, so we got to make it worth your while. One way I can make it worth your while right now is by telling you that we got to go to the NWA power tapings. We got to go to the back for the attack tapings. That was awesome. A lot of fun. And uh, then Will, unfortunately he couldn't make the the, uh, power tapings. Rob and I went and Will's probably grateful that he didn't make it because night one, I was up till 4 a.m. And guess what I was doing? It was too late. And guess what I was doing? I was at a place called, the Pink Pony, Rob. Can I oh can I say that on this podcast? Is that okay? The uh, the lovely Tanya will never listen to this, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does she still not know? The, oh, nah, she's perfect. cool. Yeah, I, here, here, yeah, she knows. <laughs> no, wait, wait, no. Here's what he did. Here's what he did. Well, let me tell you. So we're we're there, and he's like, "You ever heard of the Pink Pony, dog?" I'm like. No, nah, man, I've never heard of the people. He's like, strip club. We'll go out to the strip club. We'll like hang out. Like every time we're in Atlanta, me and Tandy, we go to the Pink Pony. It's off the chain. Like, it's cool. We love the Pink Pony. And uh, Tandy loves it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So uh, I'm like, I, you know, it's been a long time since I've been to a strip club. And I don't know how many strip clubs you've been to, Will, but minor, I, I can count them on one hand, uh, probably three fingers. And uh, the, so as we're sitting there, we're like hanging out at the Airbnb and he FaceTimes Tanya. And so we're talking to Tanya on the phone. And then I'm just like having casual conversation with Tanya. And I'm just like, so Tanya, 
tell me about the peak pony. And I get hit from the side, like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, what? I didn't know. What I'm happened like, to the stays in the letter, bro? What happens at the post? Like, he stays I mean, in the post. You know, I just heard about the peak pony. I don't know. I mean, nobody's ever mentioned it to me before. I was reading something on a website. So I had to like cover my ass. And apparently, I was not supposed to bring it up to Tanya. But right before that, nah, Tanya loves the peak pony, dog. We go all the time. She does. Like, he knows she if we in Atlanta, we go to the peak pony. Look, man, you gotta understand women's psychology here. Let me, let me, let me, let me educate you real quick, man. Oh, she loves to go. She loves it. She loves to go with me. And that's where it stops. Example, we go to this place here in Chattanooga. It's a great nightclub. It's called Allen Gold's. It's actually the oldest nightclub in Chattanooga. It's a great place. On Saturday night, they do this drag show, right? One night we're there and uh, and uh, we're down there watching this show, having fun, whatever. No, Nobody's doing that wrong, you know? Well, Tanya's like, hey, you ought to go tip this dancer. So I was like, all right. So I tip her, whatever. As the night goes on, I could tell that Tanya's like upset with me. She's not, she's staying off and she's kind of being short with me. I was like, what's on? Hey, baby girl, what's going on? And she's like, you tipped that, uh, you tipped that dancer. And I said, I said, you told me to tip her. And she goes, I told you to tip her once. You went back eight times. (laughs) 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 That's kind of her philosophy. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Controlled fun, controlled fun. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I we, we we love to share stories with all of you who listen to this episode of the podcast. It's completely uncensored, and obviously we can talk about whatever we want to. So I hope it's uh it's okay with you guys to, to tell those stories. But uh, for 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 the record, I was just amazed by the strip club. I was in awe the whole time. It was it was quite the experience, probably for Rob to see me in the strip club because I was just like, these people aren't wearing pants. <laughs> Nobody, none of these ladies have pants on. I thought you had to at least wear pants. I didn't know that was a thing. Like, I mean, like panties, you know, like I didn't know strip club, like the strippers were all the way naked. Anyway, I will. I'm sorry if I'm making you uncomfortable, but that, that was, uh, <laughs> you just, Will's never going to get to hang out with us anymore. Because yeah, Natalia does so. some of these. <laughs> Well, I'll just say this. The only strippers that got tipped by us that night uh, were me tipping one to not talk to me anymore. (laughs) She came over and I was like, hey, look, I'm not going to do any. I'm just going to hand you this money. (laughs) Here, Take all of my money and just don't talk to me because I'm nervous. Well, I had had waited for forever at a bar for somebody to give me singles because apparently you had to have singles. I had to go to the ATM because I had no cash. And then some some older gentleman had to show me how to use this particular ATM because it shot the cash out in a different place. It was just all awkward. So anyway, <laughs> no good at strip clubs. So there's there's that story. Otherwise, though, power was great. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sounds like it. <laughs> so anyway, we hope you guys are watching in WA Power when you hear this and are having a blast. And uh, hopefully you are checking out our show on the official NWA YouTube. We do the post show and it is the biggest honor in the world for us to be able to do that. Uh, I think uh, both of these gentlemen would agree with me on that one. So thank you guys because you made that happen. Here we go. We got a lot of great feedback. Speaking of everything, we got great feedback from all of you about these episodes. So we also want to say thank you 
to you for that. This is something we're very excited about. We're really, really happy. It's getting out there. We're glad to get back to it. Sorry we're a little late on this one. All the stuff came up with the NWA, and that got us packed up. And Then I ended up losing the episode. I'll take that one. That's on me. Here we go. Just to reestablish the current art that you're dropping into, if this is your first time listening to the show, for whatever reason. This is a show that aims to dive deep into the history of professional wrestling, whether through specific stories, characters, topic discussions. Our goal is twofold. A, we want you to have we want to have fun with the fans of pro wrestling, sharing stories, the legacy of the business, but also B, we're trying to be out here to eliminate the gatekeepers. We're trying to learn about the business. We want to give you knowledge, uh, all the knowledge you can ever handle. So the next time you're at your friend's pay-per-view party or something or somebody invites you out to watch wrestling and they're telling you that the biggest screw job that ever happened was the Montreal screw job you can be like what did you not see Gotch Hackenschmidt too are you stupid you'll blow their freaking minds that's what's gonna happen anyway in this first multi-part series that we're discussing right now it's the history of professional wrestling in a timeline form this is a loose framework of what happened before in the beginning into where we're at now and after that we'll dive deep into other topics so believe us when we hear you that when we brushed through frank gotcha's historic career uh we went from the beginning to the end in a really short span and you were saying there's so much more about frank gotcha you should have said we know we get it one day he'll get his old episode i'm sure just stick with us that said we're always open to suggestions so feel free to interact with us at TIPW show, you can hit us up. Uh, it's a uh, TIPW show at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Um, all right, so let's do this first. Recap where we've been. Episode one talks about the legends and the, and the beginnings of pro wrestling, basically tossing out examples from the Donna man to like the very late 1800s. Episode two got us into the carnivals, discussing how all of that worked, how pro wrestling evolved into the very basics of its current state. Uh, the rise of Farmer Birds, who was the, the essentially the great great granddaddy of pro wrestling, and episode three got us to the legendary Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and the very first like real big money feud. It was also the establishment of the very first World Wrestling Championship. We also talked about the fallout from that feud, just how it impacted the business, and for those that need a refresher, Frank Gotch won that match, albeit through. Dubious means. And by that, I mean, there are variations of the story. Hackenschmidt supposedly entered the fight with a hurt leg. Most of history points to an accident during training, but there are stories about a sparring partner being paid off by Gotch's team to injure him. Maybe Hack's leg wasn't injured at all, and Gotch just got him. There's even, like, a, I found a quote from Dave Meltzer in one of his articles I was looking back through, and uh, he tells the story about how he heard uh, that Gotch, you know, that Hackenschmidt, Hack went into the match thinking it was a, a work and Gotch turned it into a shoot. Uh, according to Meltzer, he said, quote, the way I heard it was that it was supposed to be worked, but Gotch shot on him because he knew he could. Uh, Hack and Schmidt lived a long life and Gotch died very young. Hack was a popular guy for many years and was very bitter. I think there was some reality to that because Hack stayed so bitter. Whether he was double-crossed, I don't know, but if he had lost a work match that was a business deal where everything was worked out between the two of them, years later when he got old, one would think he'd have a soft spot for Gotch because he was most famous for those matches, but he didn't. That always made me think there was some sort of double-cross in, in his mind that he never forgot. So 
that gets us to today. And that's where we're at now. Uh, so for my money, two big things happened in 1911 around the time the Gotch Hack and Schmidt rematch. And both, uh, both of those things are things that will never be resolved probably. But uh, one of those things is that you started to see a change in the crowds. We'll, we'll probably talk about this a little later, but basically you're watching these matches like matches could last for hours on end. Gotch Hack and Schmidt one went for like two hours, I think. And, uh, so there was like this big balancing act they were playing, like because wrestling matches had lasted for forever. Then all of a sudden, this match lasts 30 minutes, and you think that would be more entertaining for people. But then people started to really start to, I guess, Rob, probably discuss cheating, I think, or, or not cheating, but uh, working the matches and the fixes in and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and remember, like Gotch Hackenschmidt went two hours. And that was relatively short, too. I mean, you have matches that last five to eight hours back in those days, rarely. Um, and you, you bring up a lot of good points. I think, I think people, you don't, have to, you don't have to remember all these details. Just know that there's a lot of confusion about wrestling in those. There's a lot of conflicting stories or general thrusts and trends. But the one thing that is not disputed by anybody is that in 1913, by the time we get to his retirement, the unquestioned top wrestler on earth is Frank Gotch. No matter what, no matter what you think of, of what match was fixed or who or this or that, Frank Gotch is uh, truly the peerless one. And he put an end to the myth of the Russian lion, George Hackenschmidt. And uh, he'd been hinting at retirement for several years and actually goes through several iterations of retirements, but finally steps away following a victory over Estonian legend George Lurich. On April 1st, 1913, just to put it in a time perspective, while there was no doubt over who was the consensus world heavyweight champion during Gotch's era, when he retired, this opened up a Pandora's box. It's like when uh, Alexander the Great passed away, and then you have this scurry, the splitting up of the, of the Greek Empire over rival claimants to the throne. The same thing happens. When Gotch retires, you're going to have several several people that are scrapping for that throne, for that that claimant to be the top guy. Hack, uh, Gotch would come out of retirement multiple times, I think like between seven and nine times all to get together. And though he formally relinquished the championship in 1913, most people still regarded him as the top dog. It's like after, uh, if you guys can remember, when, when Mike Tyson lost the championship to uh, Buster Douglas, even though Tyson had been defeated, I think everybody thought that Tyson, you didn't get the best of Tyson, that the best Tyson was still the top dog, regardless of whether Buster Douglas had won. And there's always this assumption, which did happen, that Tyson would eventually return and become undisputed champion again. Um, that's the same thing with Gotch. Gotch stepped away, and even though you have people that were nominal champions or that claimed it, whenever Gotch, Gotch's name was mentioned, it was mentioned with reverence and awe as that is the true champ. Another thing that happened there, which would be the, the the point two that I was thinking about, is that you had this Gotch and Hackenschmidt feud that had been able to draw crowds uh, due to their both of their legendary status. But as Gotch held that title into 1913, he was the man, of course, but nothing ever quite hit like that rivalry with Hackenschmidt. And then you were strictly, it seemed like, from basically everything I could read, you were floating on the name of Frank Gotch. And so as Gotch is winding down, 
you know, one thing we take for granted nowadays that wrestling seems to be very good at or that they've learned to be very good at is that as one champion's winding down, there's somebody waiting in the wings to take their place or there's guys lined up to fill that spot. And uh, in this case with Gotch, that wasn't the case. There wasn't necessarily somebody right there waiting. And so we also start to see the rise. I mean, it's one thing to draw a crowd or to be a badass, but it's another thing to make people care. And so we see like a transitional period a little bit. And also, I think you would say probably at this time, we start to see the rise of another important aspect of professional wrestling. And that's the rise of the promoter. Yeah, when, when, when wrestling moved from the carnival to the, to the city, I mean, wrestling was already, was always a rural enterprise, but when it moved to the city, when Madison square garden became, uh, you know, wrestling central, the promoter was there to bank on that. It, it became a big money enterprise and you had lots of hands in that. And, uh, um, to, to speak of the confusion of the title picture, when Gotch stepped away and you had all these claimants, just listen to listen to this list. On the point of Gotch's retirement, Henry Oderman and Jess Westergaard had a bout for the championship. Dr. Benjamin F. Roller, who was the guy that allegedly had, had injured Hackenschmidt, claims the title. On January the 1st, uh, 1914, Gotch writes uh, to the New York Times, the New York Times now, mainstream media, and reasserts his retirement and it suggests that Fred Bill and Gus America's Sean line should wrestle for the championship. Uh, then you had Charlie Kid Cutler who claimed the title by virtue of the fact that he was a three-time American champion. This is the same championship held by Gotch, Farmer Burns, and Evan Stringer Lewis, though by January 1st, 1914, the championship was held not by Cutler, but by William Dimitrol. So you get another person who has a, a claim to the throne. So Gotch, like in his apparent unwillingness to drop the championship, remember he retired as champion. If he had dropped the championship, uh, assuming that wrestling was fixed back then or worked to an heir apparent, this would have saved wrestling from the state of confusion that dominated for several years. Um, and you wouldn't have this attempt by multiple people trying to, to claim the emperor's throne. Uh, by the way, Gotch, uh, when he finally did write that article on January 1st, 1914, reasserting his, uh, his retirement, even though people still recognized him as the one true real world champion, he didn't have long left to live, man. Uh, by, by 1917, Gotch uh, would be dead. And, uh, and he would wrestle intermittently up to that point. And every time he would wrestle, even up to the point of death, people still recognized him as the true champion. And there were many, many promoters who wanted to associate with Frank Gotch to get that, to get that pay dirt. It's hard to understand for people nowadays because there's like so many promotions and there's so many champions even. Uh, just to understand that there was like one world champion, like one world's biggest badass like there's you know so when that person passes away you know it's it's easy to assume like somebody's just gonna beat him and take it but it didn't quite work that way like it, it was like all of a sudden all these people just rise up like you were saying and it's uh i guess let's let's talk about some of those people a little more right i would say really with in the absence of frank gotch wrestling reverted to what it had been before remember the notion of a lineal championship is a rather novel thing in history, you know, in a sport that goes back to Bible times. So we talked about in, in episode one uh, of this, of this 
deep dive in the history of pro wrestling. We've got a little championship because we have history that has built that line. But in Frank Gotcha's era or the era right before him, the titles sometimes didn't really mean anything. People would just sometimes even create a title. You would show up and this is the Tennessee heavyweight champion of the world, you know, and you would put that belt on. It wasn't so important that you were the champion. It was a, a much bigger deal that you were the baddest man on the block. You know, guys like McDonough or William Flagg or guys like that. What Gotch did was something new. He condensed all that. He, he synthesized all that into a generally recognized world champion. And when he his absence, it sort of reverted back a few, a few years into what they had before until we get to a guy named Joe Stecker. Joe Stecker would add a lot of clarity to the championship pitcher. He was a Nebraskan, just like uh, uh, many of the greats of old. Uh, he defeated Cutler on uh, July 4th, 1915. Uh, some sources date this July the 5th, 1915, uh, but the best sources say July the 4th. And he defeated him in two straight falls for a total match length. Get this now, not five hours, not four hours, not three hours. In 28 minutes and four seconds, two straight falls. Stecker lays claim to the world championship. In attendance, by the way, was Frank Gotch, who'd only wrestled a week earlier on June the 28th, 1915, defeating Henry Oderman, who was another person who had claimed the title. Gotch was offered $25,000 to challenge Stecker. And over the next several months, Stecker solidifies his claim with impressive and sometimes controversial wins over men like Paul Sass, Ed the Strangler Lewis, um, and, and others. Ed the Strangler Lewis was quickly establishing his finish with the leg scissor hold as one of the most feared maneuvers in wrestling. And Stecker, by get, uh, earning wins over people like that, was quickly quickly becoming the obvious heir apparent to the legacy of Frank Gotch. Yeah, you don't get to just like skip over Stecker. Come on, man. Stecker is Stecker's a, a rural farm boy. He, he practices leg scissors hold on pigs and even mules. That was this thing like you love just like getting in there with the farm animals and just like locking them up. Hey, wait a minute, Gary. I think actually, uh, you know, one of the joys of this show is that from time to time we have guest callers call in and I think we've got Mr. Stecker on the phone right now. Hey, Mr. Stecker. Hey, hey, hey this, this, this Dr. Stetson. Hey, Dr. Stetson. Hey. This is Joe Stecker. Hey, man. Hey, man. How's hey. it going? Oh, it's going so good, Doc. Uh, listen, I, I just got, I, got, I was out there, I was at the stables and uh, I was checking out my, my, my leg holds and uh, I heard you talk about me. So I wanted to come on in here and uh, and talk to you. Uh, you know, I was up there with a, uh, with a, with a mule and I said, nice legs. When do they open? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, anyway. How does so, one, I, I got a to do list, got, Doc, this. and you're on it. Here I am, son. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you got this leg scissors hold. How does one? I gotta know. I've never seen the leg scissors hold. I've only heard it described and and I've heard it described in conflicting ways. But how does one apply a leg scissors hold to a mule or to one of your swine? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, what, what what you want to do is you, you tempt them in. You say, if, if what if one of my legs is Christmas and one of them is Thanksgiving, you want to visit for dinner between the holidays? And you, you let them, 
but then you suck her all in and then you get them and you just squeeze it tight. You squeeze them tight. And then, uh, you know, as they're choking out, you say, Hey, you my boss. Cause you're giving me a raise. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's how you do it. But uh, no, what they did was is, is this freight guy. You know, who, who it was is farmer birds. He thought he was slick. He's walking through. He's coming through town one day. And he rolled up here, and he had uh, Yusuf Hussein, as I recall. And he walked in here, and that guy was one of those uh, average stretchers. He was, uh, you know, he was one of those fellas. And they thought, well, a gambling circuit, we like to challenge a local wrestler. Well, they didn't know I'd been having some time with the with the farm animals, you hear. And so they brought me in, and they wanted me to wrestle Yusuf. Well, he didn't know what was what was going down, you know, because I mean, I, I've had a lot of experience with farm animals, you know, and I, and I tell you, and not like, and don't be gross, Will. I see you over there, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's all gross stuff, but it ain't like that. You know what? I don't do anything nasty with pigs. You know why, Will? Why's that? Because they'll squeal on you. Oh, so the uh, so anyway, me and Yusuf, we get into it, but I got him in that leg lock, right? I got I got Yusuf in the leg lock, and he ended up like biting my inner thigh, which normally would be a flirtation move, but we were wrestling for money, so broke it up. But Farmer Bird saw something in me, and he put me out there and and, and trained me and took me on on my way, and that's uh, how I became the greatest world champion that ever did live. Uh, I'm, I'm like a Rubik's cube. The more you play me, the harder I get. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, you, you came in at an interesting time and I don't want to, I don't want to impose on your time there champ, but, uh, you know, you got a lot of guys out there that are claiming the throne. You got, uh, uh, Fred Bill showing line. You got, uh, uh, guys like Cutler who you beat, but then you got Frank Gotch. I mean, how do you, how do you get out of the shadow of Frank Gotch? Well, I, I don't hate Frank Gotch. I'm just not excited about his existence, you know, because he looms, he looms overhead for all of us. We can't help it, but, uh, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't come out of retirement. I wish we were better strangers, me and Gotch. Uh, he, he just, you know, he was just sitting out in the crowd. He's a, he's, you know, but what, what can you say for a man who won't step in the ring with you? You know what I mean? Anyway. That's just life. That's that's how it is. So, but hey, George, I'm Stecker. I'm the world champ. That's all you need. Well, I appreciate you, your you. time, champ. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you get back to your swine and to your mules, and uh, and uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, I'm gonna get back into it if you know what I'm saying. All right, see you later, boys. <laughs> so, so, uh, so alongside the rise of Joe Stecker, getting back to what Gary was mentioning earlier. We have the rise of the promoter, one important promoter, especially in the New York scene and the Madison Square Garden scene was one Jack Curley. Um, it's almost like their rises parallel one another. Um, Jack Curley was Stature's handler or manager, and through Curley's influence, the Urban Center now became as critical and in terms of money drawing power, probably more critical than the rural areas where wrestling uh, sort of grew up at. Madison Square Garden had hosted its first wrestling event in January the 18th, 1880, uh, then called Gilmore Garden when the great William Aldoon defeated Professor Tabau Bauer for the American Greco-Roman Championship, and it was becoming a wrestling hotbed, perhaps the greatest wrestling hotbed in the country. The rise of Curly, uh, the Urban Wrestling Center, Madison Square Garden, etc., 
came a new focus on showmanship as a critical component of the performance art of wrestling, evidenced as late as uh, 1915 in a month-long event filled with storylines, swerves, shocks, and controversies called the Manhattan Opera House New York International Tournament. Now, you boys might have seen this on, on a almost stated character there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> now, you boys might have seen this. Um, you just talk like that the rest of the show. <laughs> this is just this is just how I talk now. Okay, <laughs> the, uh, it's very comfortable. No, like, Where are you from, Georgia? Yeah, South Georgia. So this is natural. <laughs> but yeah, MLW just uh, brought this thing back, like the Opera House, like the Opera Cup, and uh, so it's just kind of neat just seeing this thing. Uh, even to this day, if you want to look around uh, MLW, just go to YouTube. You can check them out. They're they're dealing with this exact same deal but the cool part about it to me rob is that you're dealing with the first sort of like big event like an actual card almost you know that seems that's what it seems like at least yeah and it's not like they opened up with like a supercar like a wrestlemania they opened up with more like a traveling touring great american bash this is a multi-day well-promoted event that lasts from December of 1915 until the end of January 1916. So well over a month, uh, you had a Greco-Roman tournament, you had a catch tournament, you had major prizes, $5,000 purses. Um, Alexander Aberg um, won the Greco-Roman tournament and the $5,000 purse that went with it. Um, while the winner of the catch portion, and my records are a little unclear on this, but it would appear that uh, Ed the Strangler Lewis um, won the catch uh, purse. Other purse uh, participants included uh, Benjamin F. Roller, former training partner to uh, uh, George Hackenschmidt, George Lurick, George Bailey, Wilhelm Berner, and others. But the stars of the tournament were uh, obviously Ed the Strangler Lewis, Vladek Sabisco, and Stanislaus Sabisco. And then another guy uh, called the Masked Marvel. Very interesting character. Let me let me talk about uh, storylines for a second. I don't Go I don't ahead. know if you said this, Rob. I'm sorry, I, I may have missed it, but that, just I know it's like this is a lot of information, especially if uh, for for people just jumping in on wrestling and stuff. I know it sounds like a lot of names, and some of these names we've seen pop up, like Roller. Uh, I think you mentioned earlier, but he's the guy who was even accused or or even told the story about he injured Hack or he was paid to injured Hack and Schmidt back in the day, and then like. Uh, uh, Jack Curley was the guy. I don't even remember if we mentioned this so much, but he was the guy who was the mastermind behind setting up the Gotch and Hack and Schmidt match. So, like he, you know, there there are connections here. Like these, there, there's like a not not familial. I don't know what the word is, but there there are links to all of these people. Yeah. And I know we you can't spend all day like telling where everybody was at each time as we go through the stories, but. You know, if you drew a map, there's a lot of crossover, basically. Right, right. You're not, this is, remember, when we think of like WWE, NXT, AEW, NWA, those are, those are relatively, you know, those, those are going to emerge in the 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, right now you just got a broad, a broad informal network of promoters that all hear about each other in the papers are getting mainstream press, obviously in the New York Times and whatnot. And uh, and and they have a an interest in the business. It's a close knit circle. It's a small circle of people that are emerging as superstars. Uh, so yeah, you're going to see a Curly and a Stecker and a Roller 
reemerge from time to time. You'll see the Zabiscos and Ed the Springer Lewis, they're going to appear over the next couple of uh, lessons uh, or, 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 or uh, um, podcasts on this. It's just, it's, it's a, cl- and, and look at the names like Stanislaus and Vladek Zabisco. You know, obviously you got Larry Zabisco who's drawing uh, his heritage from that. You've got uh, the manager, Billy Sandow. You guys recognize the name Sandow? Damien Sandow. Damien Sandow, AKA Aaron Stevens. So, uh, you know, that the, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think one of the threads that has remained constant is that there is a, there is a sense of protecting the business. There is a sense of identity and a close knitness. And up until the Manhattan Opera House, you had straight up Cape being observed. I mean, you never had an assault on Cape Bay where people trying to expose the secrets or the inner workings of, of wrestling until you had the emergence of, uh, of the mass Marvel. And that's when you have the first like public media driven attempt to get behind the veil, as we like to say from time to time. But uh, in one of the story, the mass Marvel is probably the greatest storyline, but it's not the only one in one storyline. Uh, Alexander Aberg defeats Ed, Ed, uh, Ed, the strangler Lewis in a battle of styles. Aberg was the Greco Roman champion having held the title since 1903, guys, this is 1915 now. This guy, Aberg, held the championship of the world in the Greco-Roman style since 1903. That reign is almost as impressive as the current reign of Nick Aldis, just about. And then you had uh, oh. Lewis, a catch-as-catch catch, <laughs> catch can specialist facing Aberg under Greco-Roman rules. Um during the tournament, Lewis and his manager, Billy Sandow, make the claim to being the American Catch champion based on his victory in the tournament over Dr. Roller, who had won the title from Cutler, who had won the title from Oderberg, or excuse me, Oderman, who had won the title in a match encouraged by Gotch between Oderman and Jess Westergaard. So we have a, I know that's a lot. Let me say it again. During the tournament, Ed Lewis and his manager, Billy Sandow, try to make the claim of being the American Catch champion. Why did they make the claim? Because Lewis had defeated Dr. Roller. Dr. Roller had won the title from Cutler, who had won the title from Oderman, who had won the title in a match encouraged by Frank Gotch between Oderman and Jess Westergaard. Now, you don't have to remember any of that. What's important about that, though? There is a clear attempt here to establish a lineal championship. I won this title because I won it from this guy who beat this guy, beat this guy, who beat this guy. You have the really the first documented attempt at linealness here in wrestling history, which I think is pretty cool, Will. Yeah, and it's it's something that um, you know it didn't exist up until this point, really, because you just kind of had hubs of wrestling all across the country, and you know we talk about this transition from the carnival to a more of a national stage and a worldwide stage. Even and so we do. We're seeing this for the first time that it means something. Where did the title come from? And you hear it referenced in wrestling all the time today. It's like that's the same championship that Luthez held. That's the same championship that Ric Flair held. You know, you hear all these references, and the prestige comes from who held that title along the way. And it's interesting to you know go back in time and relive where that first started and why that championship was prestigious because who had held it before you and where did you get it and how did it work its way up the ladder to you know whoever was currently holding it. The other side of it too that I think is really cool is that on the same token, 
that you're getting that like legit like sports like feel that people want to know who is the lineal champion. You're getting what Rob was saying like storylines, and uh, so like storylines are becoming important. Like the the tales that they're telling in the ring or behind you know like leading up to a match are starting to become really important. Uh, for instance, like I mean, one of the things that's big during this time is that uh, endings to matches were definitely starting to be predetermined. If you ever doubted it beforehand, by the time you got to this opera tournament, uh, it, it was becoming predetermined for sure. And everyone knew what would happen, but the people involved had the most advantage. And the advantage there is that they could bet on it and gamble and make more money. But then because you're entering into a situation like, like a tournament, uh, you're going to have a lot of matches in a short period of time. And so you can't just, it's not like a carnival that travels one place in one month that is in a different area of the country in the next month and that sort of thing. Now you're all in this tournament. And so this is the first time you start to see finishes become an art form. Like, how do you, how do you wrap up this match? Like what's the, you know, it can't always be the same at every single matches or every single match. So you start to see these people develop that art form like even as it is now like you you hear about bookers that are great finish guys and that sort of thing i mean this is where that started to come into play as well all of these guys are going to have matches with each other through the tournament you've got to be creative about how it works out because you're also trying to keep kayfabe at the same time yeah uh speaking of finishes um i've got a note here in my notes uh on um december the 6th 1915 50 51-year-old George Bothner defeats Ivan the Cussing Cossack Lenau with a scissors hold at the Manhattan Opera House. Bothner explains in a Brooklyn Daily Eagle News article the next day, the scissors are the keenest development of straight catches catch can wrestling. They are necessary to the man who makes a specialty of that style and are as effective as they are spectacular. They represent a phase of the art of self-defense, which requires skill, patience, strength, and quick thinking. They are entirely different from the toehold, which is simply a matter of getting a peculiar twist on a man's ankle and forcing him to quit in preference to having his leg broken and probably made a bum prop for the rest of his life. (laughs) A bum prop. Yes, sir. And I'm trying to find in my notes, too, speaking about like storylines, George Bailey uh george bailey oh yeah it's a wonderful on, life what do you want barry isn't that moon up there a leg scissor they'll bring it right down for you that's what i'll do <laughs> yes on january the 11th 1916 uses his hypnosis gimmick in a match against sola heaven again meaning he had done it before and though heaven won he claimed that bailey had mesmerized him into breaking several holes thank god there was no twitter back then to rip that apart because <laughs> For all of you who are hating on the feed right now, <laughs> yeah, eat George it, Bailey's dick. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And if you won't, he'll he'll hypnotize you into doing it. <laughs> now, g- given the 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 George Bailey storyline, the A Berg Strangler Lewis style versus style storyline, the uh, efforts to establish lineage with Lewis and Sandow, probably the greatest storyline. No, not probably. Definitely the greatest storyline to come out of the opera house was the masked Marvel. The emergence of the 
first, I can't say it's the first, but certainly the first important mass wrestler in wrestling history. The novelty of the Marvel was the talk of the wrestling world. And he picks up impressive victories against Wilhelm Berner, George Lurick, and he gets draws against Vladik Zabisco and Alexander Aberg. Um, the buzz created by the Marvel present, uh, prompts investigative reporting from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle to make the assertion that the mass Marvel is none other than Pennsylvania journeyman, former brakeman in the Hollidaysburg and Morris Cove Division, Pennsylvania Railroad, Mort Henderson. Of course, Marvel's manager, Ed Pollard, denied that claim, and he denies it to the very day. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle would actually stalk the Marvel, the mass Marvel throughout the tournament. They would follow him uh, after the shows. Uh, they followed him to an athletic club, pursuing him on a motorcycle, and they would release additional personal details of his life, release, you know, releasing it to the press every day. Kids, families would pick up the paper just to find out who is this mass marvel and what is he doing. On uh, January the 3rd, 1916, the Daily Eagle prints a photo of Mort Henderson with the caption, the mass marvel without his hood. I'm going to tell you right now, that was a jerk move. You know, again, like, like I would tell Gary, what happens at the peak pony? Stays at the pink pony. This is fun though. I mean, when you think about like mass wrestlers, you especially think about like uh, luchadors and, and that sort of thing now. But like here is like an early like uh, early 1900s masked wrestler, and the freaking public can't stand it. We have to know who's under that mask. Like who even, who even did they think it could possibly be? You know what I mean? In the early 1900s, like who's who is this? Like what? What would be the satisfying answer to that? Well, and you got to imagine too. I mean, it, it's commonplace now for us to see mass wrestlers. So we're, you know, to to us, that's that's their character. That's who they are. But back then, you know, it was unheard of. So a guy shows up in a mask. Naturally, the question everyone's going to ask is, "Who is this guy?" Obviously, enough to where a, a newspaper is going to do investigative reporting on it to try to figure out, you know, who it is. It's Henry Ford. Henry Ford. <laughs> I've got another big surprise for you. I actually have on the phone right now. Again, you never know who you're going to hear from at uh, the This Is Pro Wrestling show. You might hear from Thunder Rosa one night. You might hear from uh, uh, the real world's champion, Nick Aldis. You might hear from William Flagg. But I just happen to have on the line the Mass Marvel. What's up, Marvel? Sorry, we can't hear you for the, for the mask. Could you take the mask off? Uh so, oh, I'm sorry, guys. No, listen, I, I, I get so used to wearing it. They always chasing me down. And anyway, I, I, I'm here. I'm here, fellas. Uh, mask me anything. <laughs> Mass Marvel, I got to ask you this. I'm just going to address the elephant in the room, okay? Are you the man known as Mort Henderson? Yes or no? I got to know. Way to rob. Thanks for masking. But <laughs> the thing is... Uh, I live my life by one credo and one credo only, and uh, that's don't mask, don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you masked, so therefore you must tell, right? Ooh, logic. Well, one mask time, I'm just saying that <laughs> I I can't really I can't really tell you. I mean, my whole my whole life, I've I've I've, I've done this, and and so now it would be uh it would be inappropriate for me to go ahead and reveal my identity uh, after all i will have the mask laugh <laughs> well it, it must be it must be astonishing to you that one day you're no one's ever heard of you and the next day 
you wake up and you are the talk of the greatest city in the world, New York City. You got people following you, following you to the athletic club, following you to the big pony, man. Well, uh, at the time, it's very, uh, it's, it's very cool. But then constantly you get like a, a steady string of reporters uh, asking you, are you Orville Wright? Are you Henry Ford? Are you, you know, who are you? Well, you know, mask a silly question, get a silly answer. You know what? That's what I always tell them. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, being on your podcast right now. It's my one mask hurrah. And, uh, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you, you called me up. You asked me to come on and you, you wanted me to talk to you. And, uh, you know, mask and you shall receive. And so here I am. And, uh, and just uh, I'm taking the mask of least resistance and I'm just marching my way into this story. And I just want to just go down and history as the mass marvel that's all i care about but you know nobody nobody needs to know more than that i think it's one of those uh, you know you, you mask what you can do for your country <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh man i'm a laid-back guy you know like i'm i'm cool <laughs> am i am i a famous person? Am I not famous person? I'm a man? Am I a woman? Nobody knows. I don't care. I don't care if they're even confused by that. I'll have like to- toxic masculinity or nothing like that. <laughs> Mas- <laughs> masculinity. <laughs> oh gosh. Hey, hey, look, man, Marvel. As always, you and I go way back. I appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time, man. I'm gonna le- let you get back to your masks or tasks or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That was a pretty good one. I like that. That was a that was a mass pun. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate oh, a good yeah. mass pun. Uh, mass but not least, I just want to say thank you to everybody out there for 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 listening. This is pro wrestling. Uh, Rob was masking for it, and here I am, and uh, just happy to happy to be a part of it. Thanks, everybody. Celebrate the mask present and future of the greatest sport <laughs> in the history of the world. <laughs> oh man! Well, I've. I well, really hope that was an accurate representation of that fella. <laughs> Late in the Opera House tournament, the Mass Marvel attempted to accept a challenge to leave the tournament to wrestle the, at this time, the consensus world champion, Joe Stecker. Now, remember, this is not yet 1917, so Frank Gotch is still alive. So there were people that were still claiming that he was the world champion, even though he had uh, vacated or abdicated the throne. But he uh, accepted a challenge to leave the tournament to wrestle the consensus world champion Joe Stecker, who happened to be in New York City at a time in a match promoted by, guess who? Your boy, Jack Curley at Madison Square Garden. Oh, that bastard, Jack Curley. (laughs) This is how big a deal this was, man. There was a court-ordered injunction preventing the match. Like the court stepped in and said, nah, it can't happen. I don't know why that is. I don't know if, if it has to do with the fact that a, a masked man could not challenge for the championship. I don't know. Uh, it's just it's impressive to me that the courts at that point, like wrestling was big enough a deal that the courts had to enter an injunction to prevent the mass uh, Marvel from facing Stecker in a match for the, for the consensus world championship. That's a pretty big deal. Isn't that even like a later rule? Like even in the NWA, they play that game. Like uh, you, you can't be champion if you're if you're wearing a mask or something like that. Well, there have been there have been a couple of mask champions. You've had Cahagas, you've had uh, Abyss uh, that have been mask champions. But you're right. Traditionally, in the NWA, at least up to the '90s or so, 
uh, you could not have a mass champion. There's a great story that you can find on our TikTok page, and we've referenced it on previous episodes in which a, a mysterious figure showed up in the uh, in the NWA in 1984 known as the, the, the Midnight Rider. He looked like Dusty Rhodes, sounded like Dusty Rhodes, but his face was obscured, so no one can prove that it was Rhodes. Rhodes actually wrestled Ric Flair for the championship and won the match, won the title, beat Flair fair and square in the ring, and would have been the world champion, except the promoters demanded, the, the, the leadership at the NWA said, you can have the title, you want it, but you got to take the mask off. The only problem was that if it were Dusty Rhodes, this would have been a big problem because he was under a 60-day ban. If he had uncovered his face, revealing himself to be Rhodes, then uh, he would have been banned for maybe permanently, up to a year or beyond that. I choose to think that it was not Dusty Rhodes. Uh, it was, in fact, the Midnight Rider. He would reemerge a couple times uh, again in wrestling history. He just had the pride. He didn't need to win a belt to have the pride. Of, of knowing he was at the top of his game. He took down Ric Flair in the eyes of the world in the plain light of day for the whole world to see. He didn't need the trophy, and he wasn't going to sacrifice his own self-identity by being forced to humiliate himself and take the mask off. Well, I don't know if this is it for you, but one of my fun parts of the episodes are always trying to see like what I've got to say to stir Rob and to cut the promo in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. If he like you just mentioned Pope and he just like launches it, I cannot, shall not, will not be moved. <laughs> it's like, just... man, the spirit hits me, man. It's like, and you know, ha, every now and again, ha, when the mass writer shows up, ha, you just gotta praise his name. Ha, took Daniel ha, out the lion's den. He took Jonah out the belly of the whale. I got to run to keep from hiding. Let's do it. I said, Jesus. Love that guy. Good commercial. Now we've lost everybody. We have a camp meeting tonight. Woo! Revival. Anyway, anyway, eventually an agreement was reached between the parties of Stecker and Curly and the party of the Mass Marvel. And on January 27th, 1916, look, in with a boom, out with a whimper, right? Stecker defeats the Marvel in two straight falls with what? The leg scissor hold perfected on mules and swine. Hell yeah. That's how you do it. <laughs> well, let me ask you guys this, you know, going going back to the mask question and conversation. It's been a little bit since we had a masked champion in the NWA um, or, you know, a masked world champion anywhere. You know, really, I can't think of one off the top of my head besides, you know, Rey Mysterio years ago. But, you know, what would you guys thoughts be, you know, hypothetically? I know this pains you, Rob, but to think of like Nick Aldis dropping the title at some point to a masked wrestler now, how would you feel about that? Would it be strange? I mean, obviously there would need to be some storyline, some established, you know, authority there, but would it be strange? I don't, I don't think it's as big a, a deal anymore. Again, we've had a couple of masked wrestlers. We've had Cahagas. We've had blue demon jr. We've had abyss. All three of those were masked. I mean, if you want to call abyss and Cahagas masked, but blue demon jr. Was definitely masked. You know, no doubt about that. I don't think it's a, as big a deal anymore, man. I mean, um, you know, it was a fixture. I don't know why. Well, I think part of it was, um, back in, back in the territory days and in the eighties. And prior to that, when you won the title, you had to put down an escrow on the championship, right? To, to, to be sure that you couldn't go off to Japan or whatever and drop the belt and someone not, 
drop it back. Do you know? Do the favor back. I'm trying to get too far behind the veil. That's not our point here. But I think part of not letting the masked wrestler hold a championship was to protect the belt, uh, to protect protect somebody from going off the deep end and, and getting too carried away in the story, you know. And so, you know, when if the Midnight Rider uh, is Dusty Rhodes, that's one thing. But if the Midnight Rider is not, let, remember. We had a guy come out as a Midnight Rider who looked awfully a lot like Sam Houston. He was about my weight, about my height, you know, probably 180, 185 pounds. He did not look like the mass, uh, the mass, uh, or the, uh, the the Midnight Rider that we all knew uh, as, you know, what appeared to be Dusty Rhodes, you know, 260 pounds, more robust. So I think <laughs> I think that rule was at a time when, championships were tied up in real life escrows. You know, Ric Flair talks about when he uh, left for the WWF the first time, he still had the belt and the belt belonged to him. He put a $25,000 escrow on the belt. And when he left, you know, Jim Hurd called him and said, you know what? We got to get the belt back. He's like, you're not getting the belt back until you give me $25,000. This belt belongs to me. And he left, showed up in the WWF with the belt. So I think the, the whole mass rule was kind of an attempt to alleviate or to avoid that uh, predicament that scenario so i don't know if it's as relevant because i don't know that champions put down escrows anymore I, it, there might be some that do but i don't know that it's a, as important today that makes sense well, and, and i imagine too that you know with all the territories we didn't yet have a governing body you know of for professional wrestling and and a, a singular promotion and so what was to stop someone from putting the mask on and showing up in a different territory claiming to be that person and, right. you know, then you have no creative control over it. You've got no control over the narrative. So, I mean, nowadays, obviously, we don't have that scenario. You've got if you had a mass wrestler show up in the NWA, they're a part of the NWA. You're, you know, if if somebody claiming to be that person showed up somewhere else, people would know that's not really the person. You know, it's not really the case. Um, but back then, I mean, I'm sure that was a, a legitimate concern. Yeah, hi, hundred percent, man. I think all that's true. All that, all that feeds into to the scenario. I think that wrestling is so much more centralized uh, now, uh, in you know promoters who who have complete comprehensive control over the product that that's not a, as big a fear. And and it just so happens that we live in a in a day which, especially with the emergence, the mainstream emergence of lucha libre style wrestling, that the mask is unavoidable. And uh, the mask has become uh, has much more of a mainstream appeal and people like them. You know, people people are big fans of it. So let me just say something real quick before we move on past the opera house. I do want to read something real quick from my notes. The structure of the tournament. Okay, as as wrestling historian Steve Yo points out, I'm going to read this directly, Will. Okay, so it sounds like I'm being a little robotic here. I just want to make sure I get this right. As wrestling historian Steve Yo points out. Several things from his research, and he's one of the great historians, so I, I trust this. Several things from his research on this tournament, where all our entries in this section came from, and all of our talk on this, this discussion came from, essentially. Uh, wrestling was using a three-second count in 1915, by this point. The common three-second count, not a one count, like in old days, uh, or in one count in common um, Greco-Roman-style collegiate wrestling. They, they were using a three-count by this point. Uh, was a catch-as-catch-can wrestling tournament ongoing with the Greco-Roman tournament. So we know there were at least two tournaments going on simultaneously. The Greco, and I think I alluded to this earlier, 
The Greco-Roman tournament was won by Alexander Aberg, who was from who uh, was promoted the whole time as world champion of that style, a championship that he'd claimed in as early as 1903. And it appears that Ed the Strangler Lewis won the catch part of the tournament, although the tournament is very confusing and must have been on some type of point system. Both Ed Strangler Lewis and Billy Sandow were calling themselves world champions, even when lineal champion Joe Stecker came to town. On uh, January the 4th, 1916, in the international tournament, the Mass Marvel went on to a no contest with Pospisil. After Pospisil was injured, Vladek Zabisco defeated London, and to my knowledge, none of those claimed any kind of lineal rights or, or anything, and I don't see where they're they're points factor into the tournament but it does seem like there were at least two uh side-by-side tournaments going on a greco-roman and a catch style and that they were using a point system kind of like the the, uh, future shock tournament you remember starcade future shock where they did this tournament and it wasn't based off it wasn't like a a uh, you just go through the brackets and you defeat somebody and you're out you look more around robin and everybody's wrestling a bunch of people maybe everybody's wrestling everybody and you accrue i think we did like a private uh watch during the pandemic for like our our crew right the new japan cup or something is kind of like that anyway not like a bracketed tournament but like more about wins and losses absolutely the effect on the tournament or on the opera cup uh event not if you want to call it a tournament it's really I mean, they were calling it a tournament, but it, it, it seemed more like a, uh, a round-robin expo of wrestling. But the effect on the tournament, the effect of the tournament on the perceptions of the sport is as follows. And this is, by the way, this is written in the uh, Brooklyn Daily Eagle, I believe. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, whatever. It said this. Professional wrestling has for so many years been tainted with open or covert fraud that it is a wonder the quote-unquote tournament was ever taken seriously. Somehow the promoters bought by and introduced a really interesting feature in the Mass Marvel, who is beyond all peradventure one of the cleverest grapplers ex- extant. A hippodrome may be entertaining as an exhibition, but it is absolutely without interest as a contest. What we have here is the Opera House really promoting the sport of wrestling as a spectacle, but diminishing it as, a, in fact, a sport. I know that a lot of this is like convoluted and confusing to a lot of people. I feel like that's the case. I don't know, Will, you can probably speak to that. You're you're over here listening to us talk about it. Like if it sounds like it's a, a lot of names and a lot of, I don't know, you're the audience surrogate. Does it feel that way sometimes? No, I mean, it's it's super fascinating. I mean, it, it's it's interesting to put yourself in a different time thinking about the development of, of what we have come to accept today as the norm when it comes to professional wrestling, but it wasn't always that way. And, you know, to think about a tournament going on, whether it was a traditional tournament or not, and there's multiple styles happening, you know, catering to multiple audiences. I mean, this is something we see now, even with wrestling promotions. I mean, wrestling promotions get kind of pegged as certain styles with the high flyers, the big guys, the this and the that. But back then, you know, this was all happening everywhere. And this this kind of tournament, this opera tournament was a way to bring all those styles together. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of names. I mean, it's a lot of stuff that, I, you know, I'm probably not going to remember all of it, but the overarching story of professional wrestling, which is ultimately what we're trying to tell here, is is the real story. And it is going from 
the carnival to the national stage to the point where, you know, I mean, the fact that you've even got a, a journalist writing about this, and even though he's trying to discredit it as a sport, it still speaks to the notoriety and the public awareness of professional wrestling at that time. You know what I mean? It was growing. And one of the important parts it feels like, and Rob can probably speak to this, but one of the important parts it feels like is they were trying to like round it back up to the popularity that they had during the time of Gotch and Hack and Schmidt. And they needed to sort of establish you know, we, we, we keep talking about this lineal championship and that sort of thing. So I think the names that are probably the most important that we're saying here, like if you're only going to pull a few away right off the bat, coming into this are probably names like Stecker, who we mentioned, and uh, I made fun of, so I apologize to his family. Uh, and then Earl Caddick and Ed the Strangler Lewis. Am I jumping ahead too far, Rob? Because I feel like that's... Uh, that's kind of where we're we're running into. Yeah, you're you're moving into what really is the next great seismic shift in wrestling. You had all this confusion. You sort of settled settled on Stecker as the champion, but guess what happens, man? Not long uh, within a year of the conclusion of the Opera Cup on April 9th, nineteen seventeen, Earl Caddick shocks the world and defeats Joe Stecker. Uh, claiming the title after Stecker is unable to finish the match. Now, a similar situation had happened just months earlier on December 11, 1916. Uh, John Olin defeated Stecker when Stecker wasn't able to continue following a shoulder injury, but Olin doesn't claim the championship. However, Lewis defeats Olin, and he claims the championship on the basis of Olin's defeat of Stecker. So by April 9, 1917, you've got two people claiming the throne. You've got Earl Caddick, who had, at this point, the lineal championship, and then waiting in the wings was, as Gary pointed out, none other than Ed the Strangler Lewis. Could you imagine if this kind of logic happened now in, like, WWE? It's like, you look at storylines now, and it's like, a guy loses the U.S. title, and then the next night, he's, like, challenging for the world title, and then if he wins that, you got people being like, hey, I just beat this guy, like... That would not fly today, but it's really interesting that back then, I mean, people were ultra logical and ultimately we're, we're still in this period where titles are relatively new. And it, before that, it was just who was the toughest guy in town or who was the toughest guy in this style or promotion. And, you know, everyone's trying to make sense of it by saying, oh, well, I beat this guy and then this guy won the title. Well, I beat him. So technically I'm the champion. And, you know, it's just it's kind of all over the place. What's interesting to me, too, is though is that one of the cool parts about it that wrestling misses now, I think, forgive me, because I look, I think anybody listening to this knows we're big fans of the National Wrestling Alliance, right? So one of the only brands right now it feels like that does this is the National Wrestling Alliance. So I, I apologize. But one of the cool parts about this is that there isn't just one challenger there's multiple possible challengers to the throne and so like as we're recording this for instance you know like you've got your nick aldis and there's obviously nick aldis he's the champ but you got like a tim storm who's sitting on over commentary and he's like you know he's further out of the picture but you're like man there's still a part of me that believes that if that guy got another legitimate shot there's a chance but really like even lineally or strategically or booking wise or whatever the words are I'm trying to find here. You know, if Trevor Murdoch's your national champion, then Hey man, that guy's in line. 
And if he loses that national champion, the guy who beats him, well, that guy's in line. Uh, meanwhile, the TV champion, he's in line. If he gets enough wins under his belt, like that guy's a legit contender for the title. So there's like multiple people at any point that could be like, no way, I deserve a title shot. I I am the man. That's something you don't, I, I don't feel like you see a lot of right now. You generally have like one one guy, they focus on a feud, they feud for a month or two, you know, and that kind of thing until they work out somebody else. But like, especially during this time, there's there's at least four or five people that are like, no, I'm the best. Um, I deserve a shot at the world title. And the ones we're mentioning here, Stecker, who legitimately has established himself as a champion, Caddick beats him. And God, I know that people during the time would love it to be an easy answer, but also we're entering into a pretty controversial or not a controversial, but a pretty traumatic time for the country when Earl Caddick wins the world championship. Right. And this, I love, I'm, I'm glad you said that we just are, we are beginning to see the end of the uh, uh, tunnel here uh, in the global pandemic of COVID-19. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this 20 years down the road, <laughs> you know, because I'm sure this will still be around then. Uh, Earl Caddick in his world was experiencing a global catastrophe, too. They were going through World War One. Earl Caddick, as champion, would actually leave the country as champion. The title would lay dormant for quite some time, and he went off and served his country in World War One, and then he came back, still as champion, and resumed defending the title, much like Nick Aldis. The only difference is that Nick Aldis never stopped defending the title. He he wasn't defending it at the lightning-hot pace that he was like during the days of the Aldis Crusade, but every couple of months he'd get out there and make, shake the ring dust off and and uh, keep himself relevant. So that was going on. And you mentioned all the all the would-be contenders. One person that we need to mention before we, th- we close this particular episode out, someone that doesn't get enough discussion, doesn't get enough coverage, and may actually be the greatest in the world, even without holding the lineal title, a man who never lost a match. And that is a, a, a man by the name of the Great Gamma, or the Great Gamma. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but this is uh, possibly, according to Brian Solomon in the wrestling FAQ, what we call the Bible, the greatest pure wrestler who ever lived. He is believed <laughs> to have never lost a match. He was ducked. I don't know about that word ducked there, but evidently he was ducked by Gotch and Hackenschmidt, among many other Western competitors. And he finally found c- competition in the form of Zabisco and the two wrestled to a three-hour draw. That's the closest that the Gama ever got to losing a match. Eventually, they would have a rematch in 1928, and it would take only 42 seconds for the great Gamma or Gama uh, to win this match. So possibly the greatest wrestler of all time doesn't even get a crack at the title. It's worth mentioning him just because of the fact that this is a guy that did issue challenges. Now say what you will about the logistics of those challenges happening or whatever, but our uh, listeners in India deserve the respect that you had your old champion there and it was the great Gama and he was legitimately a badass SOB and he issued challenges. They were not accepted by all of these all of these people going back to like, or like Rob said, I mean, even a gotch or hack or 
whoever, none of these people like challenged him and he never lost an actual wrestling match. Also, they were dealing with a situation too, where they were, Oh, this is a legit tough guy. Like this is a legit shooter. Like this guy will, will break you if he gets in the ring with you. Like he's a mixed martial artist, like that kind of thing. Like the great gamma, like came across that way. He was, he was a legit badass, And so he never had the chance to participate in any of this. So, I guess the point being, America wasn't the only place that stuff was going on. There was stuff in India. India had picked up this tradition, and the great Gama was its champion. He never really had the opportunity, except for like with Zabisco, who Rob mentioned, who, uh, if you look that story up, and maybe we'll go more into detail if we do a great Gama episode, basically Zabisco like pinned him down long enough to like get him in a hold that he couldn't get out of and just held him there for like three hours. <laughs> it was just like, I'm the only man who lasted this long with the great gamma. And like later would use that to try to promote himself, which like Rob said, then years later would go back to fight him and lose in 42 seconds. Anyway. So th- there's other countries starting to develop their wrestling as well. And I'm sure we'll cover a lot of that. I think that the, the good place to to wrap up here would probably be, in my opinion, where we get into the idea that there was another wrestler, one other wrestler that we should bring up. His name was Billy. Well, you brought him up already. Billy Sandow, who saw the potential in a guy like Ed, the Strangler Lewis. And, during all of this time of controversy between the Steckers and the Caddicks and all of those things, when Ed the Stangler Lewis was coming up, Billy Sandow sort of became arguably one of the, and he wasn't the first, I don't think, and Brian Solomon could probably tell us for sure, but he became a manager of sorts, a promoter for Ed the Strangler Lewis. He saw the potential in this guy. And Billy Sandow was a wrestler who was okay in his own right, but never enjoyed the success of being a legit championship contender. But he started to understand the business aspect of things. And he kind of opened the door to, there's another way to go about this. What if I really, you what you think of as like a Paul Heyman, I think at this point, like uh, for modern context all right, well, what if I get this badass and I really make him the biggest, baddest name in professional wrestling, essentially? Then you get Ed the Strangler Lewis with Billy Sandow in his corner challenging the likes of uh, Joe Stecker and Earl Caddick, basically. Right, yeah. You you have a lot of really modern elements emerging after the Opera House. The Opera House is so – you can't underscore how important it was, but – as we as we wind down, let's kind of lay the landscape of where wrestling is setting up for, for the emergence of the Gold Dust Trio and what we're going to get really into, like the wrestling that we know and love, and that's the emergence of territories and promotions uh, like the NWA, the AWA, and, and whatnot. Uh, in 1917, as we wind this down, Earl Caddick is what we're going to identify as the lineal champion. This is the champion uh, to whom you can trace the NWA title. And now we'd like to think of the NWA titles going back to 1948. Uh, we can trace it back to Earl Caddick sh- for sure. There, there, it might be strained at points, but I think most people would agree. That's that's a claim that can be made with some credibility. He's going to go off to fight World War One and come back and be the champion. He serves to clarify a a wrestling landscape that was somewhat muddled after the retirement of Frank Gotch. Uh, Frank Gotch left uh, his empire in disarray with many claimants to the throne. Joe Stecker, 
uh, clarified that picture, and then Earl Caddick solidified it with his defeat of, of Caddick. Of course, you've got Ed the Strangler Lewis waiting in the wings, and we're going to deal with him more uh, next time. But as we leave the late 1910s and emerge into the 1920s, your top five are going to be, and this is up for debate, but as I see it, your top five wrestlers in the world are going to be number five, Vladik Zabisco, number four, Ed the Strangler Lewis, number three, Joe Stecker, number two, the Great Gamma, or the Great Gamma, and number one, your world's heavyweight champion, Earl Caddick. We get power rankings, Rob for like each uh, section of history that we do. And I love that. All right. I guess we'll wrap it up here. We're, we're deep into it here, but I promise you, like if you're sticking with us, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, it's going to start. I think from here, you're going to start to see the rise of the gold dust trio and things start to get pretty linear from here. Things tighten up. And if they don't tighten up, it's because it's from another country and we can probably tackle that separately. But um you know, obviously there's places like Japan and Mexico that are starting to see their rise and in professional wrestling too, somewhere along the, the lines here. But all right. Will, did you have anything you wanted to add? I feel like sometimes we're just like rambling on me and Robert just like tossing like ping pong and back and forth with like historical detail. No, that's good. I mean, all this is good context. I mean, it, it is definitely a little convoluted, but what you do see out of all this and my biggest takeaway is you know, as you guys alluded to, what, what's come to light from all of this is the need for some kind of governing body of professional wrestling in America, because you've got multiple guys claiming to be the champion. You've got different records, different styles, different whatever. And I think, you know, uh, it, and not not to jump ahead and you guys will probably get into this, but as just the listener making an assumption, there's going to be this need to tighten it up, land on a style, land on a champion, land on a format, uh, you know, build shows and build um, events in similar ways. Because if you really want to make it an entertainment um, sport and something that people can sink their teeth into and follow along, you, you're going to have to tighten it up a little bit. So it sounds like that's where we're headed. So I'm anxious to, to get into how that transition happens and how we get to um, what we know and love today. Rob, God bless you because you're over there. I mean, the people listening, I, I don't, I, I hope you can appreciate that Rob's over there with like stacks of notes, digging into historical texts and like paperwork backing up the stuff he's talking about you, you, you have these like spread out ideals and like all of these people trying to stake their own claims and that sort of thing until you finally like wind it down and wrestling's had its its moments where it's like it started to like with gotch and then things like kind of fall apart because they weren't planning ahead for the next step of that so then you get it to spread apart a little bit more and even with Caddick all right, well, we've secured this, and then World War One happens, and they're like, oh, son of a... Now, now yeah. Earl Caddick wants to go defend the country. <laughs> like, so, all right, well, wait yeah. a minute. What's happening here? Right, wrestling is a much more deliberate pursuit today where, you know, you've got companies like the WWE that kind of have a general idea of where they want to be a year from now. It wasn't the case back in those days. I mean, it was a much more in-the-moment thing. Whoever was the toughest guy that could emerge and and... Hey, you know, I get the feeling that they're going to like this guy and he comes in and does it, you know? So it's much more, it's much more spontaneous back in those days than it is now. I would say the exception to that would be the NWA. The NWA is very spontaneous today. They, they, you know, 
they look at the question mark, right? The question mark comes in and no one expects him to be this major, major part of, of power and what's going on in the National Wrestling Alliance. And so they take it and run with it. You're not going to find that in big promotions like the AEW so much and, and WWE. Uh, you're going to find it in much more organic promotions, but it's, it's much more what it was like in, in, in the early days. And so that's what you're seeing. So thank you guys so much if you're sticking with us so far. And I know this is the fourth episode, Ed, so we appreciate you if you've worked your way to here. Guys, we're, we're so grateful for everybody who listens. And uh, thank you. And I hope you're having as much fun with this as we are. We're going to march through the timeline. And then we're just going to start digging into the stories of your favorite wrestlers, I think. And so like that's uh, that's where we really want to end up. But we just thought it would be a lot of fun to try to, as nice of a bow as you could put on it like here is the history of professional wrestling and so we're trying to we're trying our, our best to to wade through it and not get bogged down in details and believe us there are so many more details to go through that we're just not even even trying to tackle right now but uh i think i think we're working through the timeline and it's it's going to get smoother sailing from here and we'll just have like quick episodes like kind of detailing some other stuff but anyway uh if you have ideas for what you'd like to hear you know i've seen stuff like about um maybe a history of terminology or uh you know a history of match styles like those sorts of things too we're also open to those ideas like what would you like to see what would what would be interesting to you uh, for us to categorize episodes. That would be cool. We could dive into those things and that, that could be a lot of fun. Anyway, we want to be your go-to spot for uh, for fans of pro wrestling like we are, the old school, the traditional, and uh, also, but hopefully for new people that just want to jump into a conversation and they're like, well, okay, you just said Frank Gotch. What does that mean? Well, hopefully you can listen to this and you can get an idea, an overview of who Frank Gotch was quickly and just like have an idea so you feel like you're part of the conversation if for some random reason you're hanging out with a bunch of nerds who are talking about frank gotch but anyway will rob anything you want to add before we wrap this thing up no just uh you know make sure you check us out on all the socials join our discord if you want to chat about all this stuff and um yeah just stay tuned we're getting there just uh, uh like subscribe follow uh continue this journey with us we're at tipw show on all of the social media, tipwshow.com is our website. Go to youtube.com slash this is pro wrestling. You can subscribe to us there. We would love to have you be a part of that. We do a lot of live streams. And uh, now we're also doing live streams post NWA Power. Uh, so you can check those out on the NWA's official YouTube account. Thank you so much for everybody who's been a part of this. We are grateful to every single one of you from at this is Dr. Stinson at this is Will Martin. I am at this is Gary Horn. We love you guys. Thank you so much and enjoy. Enjoy.